The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to the special edition of Out of Office, which comes to you from Glasgow. I'm Malika Kapoor. I'm here for the COP26 summit. My team, Bloomberg Live, is hosting the Bloomberg Green Summit. And as part of that, we're hosting an exclusive screening of an amazing documentary by Academy and Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Eva Orner. This is the one that bush firefighters have had nightmares about for years. Five million square kilometres. That's the size of Europe. Climate scientists are saying the bushfires in Australia are a warning of what may be to come around the world. It's called burning. It's about the deadly bushfires of Australia in 2019 and 2020, told from the perspective of victims, activists and scientists. The story Eva tells, though, is larger than that. That's my number one message that I'm saying when I'm talking to people about the film is, you know, when people sort of say, you know, what do you hope you want the film to achieve? And it's like, I want climate change to be the number one issue for voters, not the economy. Eva says the Prime Minister has failed to prioritise climate change. No, I'm very happy saying this on record. He's a terrible human being and Australia should be ashamed of Australians should be ashamed of themselves for voting for him and he will probably get in at the next election. Eva is passionate about the stories she tells and her films have a common theme. Taxi to the Dark Side is about the use of torture during the war on terror. She won an Academy Award for her role as a producer on this film. Chasing Asylum is about Australia's treatment of refugees. Bikram Yogi, Guru, Predator is about allegations of sexual assault against a yoga teacher. They're all about social justice. But I think growing up from a young age, knowing that really, really bad things happen to good people, somehow sowed a seed in me without realising it. And there's definitely a theme where I'm attracted to stories where, you know, people need to be heard or people need to, there needs to be a voice for people who are underrepresented Mm -hmm. or, or if something's wrong and it really bothers me. She insists she's not an activist. She's a filmmaker a filmmaker who cares about what kind of world she's leaving for the next generation. Here's my conversation with Eva Orner. Eva, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you for having me. I've seen Burning. In many ways, it's a very personal film, you're Australian, but it's also a really politically charged film. What motivated you to make this film? So, uh, yeah, I am Australian. I've lived in America since 2004. And it's weird, I was thinking about this the other day, I've made two films in Australia since I've left, which is surprising because I work a lot internationally. But I think, you know, the longer you're away from home, sometimes the more you realise how good it is and you get angry when it fails you (laughs) or fails your expectations. So I made one film in 2015 about um, Australia's appalling refugee and asylum seeker policies and um, and now I've made Burning. And the, the idea came, I was home in December 2019 and 2020 during the fires, at the absolute height of the fires. And going into Australia, 
I'd seen the fires that started in August when I was home in LA and I remember saying to my boyfriend at the time, well, I'm sorry, my boyfriend, not at the time. No, 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 <laughs> still my boyfriend. boyfriend. <laughs> sorry, Giorgio. <laughs> I remember saying to him, God, it's not even spring, it's winter and the fires have started. This is going to be diabolical mm-hmm. because we're not, we're used to fires. Australia burns every year and we say that in the film, but this was just unprecedented and off the scale. So came to Australia and in December... On December 27 in Melbourne, my hometown where I'd lived for 34 years, it was 47 degrees Celsius. Wow. And it had never in my 34 years gotten over 44, you know, in February. And this was December, early summer. And everyone was kind of walking around going, yeah, it's really hot. And the whole country was like on fire and it was catastrophic. And I was like, this is insane. Like anecdotally in my lifetime, the temperature in my hometown has gone up by three degrees. That's, that's not unbelievable. I mean, that's not a scientific fact. I'm very clear to say, you know, it's it's 1.5 degrees at present, temperature raise. But in my town, yeah, that's a three degree temperature rise. And I was sort of saying to everyone, guys, it's like Baghdad. Like this is not normal. No, no. And I just I felt like people weren't as alarmed as they should be. Mm. And then you know, seeing Sydney in smoke, a lot of my friends and family lost homes. Mm. Um, and by the time we got on the flight back to LA, we'd been in Sydney for a week. Our, eyes were watering we were coughing you know our noses were running and it was such a there was such an impact on us from it and I think by the time I landed in LA I was like I think I think I should make a film about it and I guess the other reason is there was such a global interest in it you know by January and December there was you know so much money coming into Australia predominantly for the wildlife which really affected people but I thought I thought maybe someone will want to you know fund this film for a global audience. The film is about uh, the fires, but in essence, it's also a larger film about Australia's failure to really take the issue of climate change seriously, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of films made about fires in the last few years, and they're all great. And I never ever want to say anything negative about them. I think there's room for so many projects about climate change or fires because it's in the zeitgeist and it's important. But I do feel like a lot of them really gloss over climate change because it's a really hard subject. I think people are really scared to make films about it. And so I really wanted this to be a climate change film and I wanted it to be incredibly tough on the government because they've failed the country and the world. But I thought telling it through, you know, the lens of the fires would be a good way to have a narrative structure to the film. Incredibly tough on the government. Let's talk about Scott Morrison, the (laughs) (laughs) Prime Minister of Australia, who went on vacation as the country was burning up and he famously said... And lied about it. And lied about it and said he wouldn't be the one to hold um, a hose anyways. I I know Australians understand this and they'll be pleased I'm coming back, I'm sure, but um, they know that, uh, you know, I I don't hold a hose, mate, and I I don't sit in the control room. Um, That's the brave people who do that are doing that job, but um, I I know that Australians would want me back at this time after these fatalities. He's a charmer, yeah. (laughs) I I can't believe he keeps getting voted in. It's just shocking to me. What will it take for him to address it seriously, for him to get really serious I about it. I'm very happy saying this on record. He's a terrible human being and Australia should be ashamed of them. Australians should be ashamed of themselves for voting for him and he will probably get in at the next election. Well, the climate change has to become an issue that resonates with voters. And that's my right? number one Goal. message that I'm saying when I'm talking to people about the film is, you know, yeah. like when people sort of say, well, you know, what do you hope you want the film to achieve? And it's like, I want climate change to be the number one issue for voters, not the economy. It's it's a crisis. It's an emergency. If we leave it any longer, which we are doing, uh, you know, your kids and grandkids are going to be in really, really, really big trouble. And I don't understand why people don't care. I don't understand 
our failures in leadership consistently and globally. I mean, God, it's not fantastic here with Boris Johnson. My God, it's shocking. Although he's, yeah. although he's sort of pretending to be more invested in in climate because I think he's hosting COP, so he has to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like Scott Morrison wasn't even going to come. I, I seriously think the reason he came was the Queen shaded him um, a couple of weeks, like a, about a month ago, and suddenly he was coming. And I thought, I was like, not a fan of the Royals. Sorry, everyone here. But I thought that was the most brilliant thing she's ever done. I mean, he's just an idiot about climate change. And I'm very, and I will say in the film, we do compliment him on his early handling of COVID. I'm not right. that one eyed where I won't give credit where Where's credit you? is due. Yeah. And he, you know, then he completely screwed up the vaccination rollout and right. the lockdowns because Delta came and no one was vaccinated. But right. he did, you know, he did, he does do the occasional thing well. And I'm, I'm very comfortable saying that, but, you know, he's consistently failed to, to, gosh, what's the word, separate himself from his relationship with fossil fuel companies and lobbyists. He's completely in bed with them to the point where he was talking about fossil fuel at the COP conference this right. week, last right. week. Exactly. Um, and the, the thing that drives me crazy is Australia is positioned to be the strongest renewable pro- energy producer in the world. We have the most resources globally out of mm-hmm. any country for renewables. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, we should have been leading the way and now we should have been dominating the world. And when people talk about, you know, lost jobs and the, the hit on the economy with, you know, the coal industry or the mining industry, we could have easily and still could easily transition to renewables. But it is a little late now, but we still have to do it. Yes. And the biggest issue is is that the governments don't think about, don't think forward, which is their jobs, which Mike Cannon Brooks says in Mike Cannon Brooks right. our he's sort of Australia's Elon Musk, this young yes. tech billionaire who's really into renewables. And he says, you know, a leader's job is to think about the future. Yes. And in ten to ten in the next decade and two decades, our, China and India, our biggest buyers of our fossil fuels, are going to stop buying fossil fuels. And because this, they're going to be further right, down their journey. Because they have to. Renewables. Because they're being forced into it. They don't want to right. do it either, but they're right. going to have to, and the Australian economy will collapse. Right. I'm not an economist, but, you know, we can't be... Living. If you don't have buyers for your product, it's as simple as that. But I guess Scott Morrison thinks he'll be retired by then and he doesn't give a shit. And he's, you know, he's got kids and grandkids. It's so funny. I don't have kids and grandkids and I'm more worried about everyone's kids and grandkids than, than, than yeah. global leadership. So yeah. to, me that's, to me, that's probably the biggest disappointment. But he's really just been a complete, you know, embarrassment and buffoon, honestly, for the last... Honestly, his entire time in politics, and I'm really comfortable saying it because it's got to stop. Did you reach out to him uh, for the movie? Yeah, yeah, I knew he'd say no to me, and he said no to appearing in the film in Chasing Asylum, which was the refugee film I did yes. when he was actually immigration minister. So this is my second <laughs> film. I mean, he's—I'm sure he has no idea who I am, but if he does, I'm sure he does not like me. <laughs> but um, it was quite funny because last time it took months for the, his office to respond saying he didn't want to appear in the film, mm-hmm. and this time it took four hours. It was a record. So oh, really? yeah, I assume his comms people were like rolling around on the floor laughing that I wanted an interview with him because I <laughs> and I said in the email it was about climate change and the fires so and they wrote back very quickly saying no thank saying, you I think we're good <laughs> but I would have talked to him I mean you know the, the thing with him that's really tricky is he comes from a marketing background which is mm-hmm. you know zero qualifications for leadership or politics but he's the master of sort of word manipulation not in a clever way but he just basically tells non-truths it's like you know, he comes out saying, gosh, I'm sounding vicious towards him today, but I'm pretty angry, I guess. He comes out at the last possible minute, you know, a week or two ago saying Australia's going to meet, you know, zero, um, net zero 2050 um, mm-hmm. because yeah. he had to before COP and we all knew he would. But there's no plan. 
Right. There's no figures. So it's a big, bold statement. And no changes to 2030, which is more important. Everyone has now realized. Everyone's talking about 2030 now. Since the UN paper came out like a couple of months ago and said it's a lot worse than we thought. Correct. So we need to accelerate climate action. Everyone is saying and everyone's focused on 2030. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'll concede with no plans for 2050 and nothing for 2030. So essentially... I mean, and also, you know, the, the methane pact that was signed last week in, at the beginning of COP, 150 countries signed it, and notably absent was China, Russia, Brazil, and Australia. Why are we suddenly aligning with the villains in the world? Why aren't we with Canada? Or, you know, we're a country like Canada, small population, right. good economy, lots of natural resources. Why, why are we hanging out with these thugs? Yeah. Um, so to me, that's, that's just shocking to me, honestly. Eva, I've watched several of your other films. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <And> <laughs> please, I'm a fangirl. What have you seen? Well, I loved Bikram, yes. uh, the movie about uh, Bikram Chaudhary, yes. the yoga guru predator. Delightful man. <laughs> Delightful man. I want to talk more about him in a moment. Sure. But, you know, your films, uh, Bikram is about the yoga teacher who turned out to be a predator. Out of Iraq, uh, Taxi to the Dark Side is about the use of torture during the war on terror. Chasing Asylum is about Australia's treatment of refugees. Your films are really socially driven, right? It's all about social justice. Yes. Where does this come from? It's funny. I didn't realize this until a journalist probably asked me a couple of films ago, and I think it suddenly struck me that, and you know, and it's an interesting story and probably something I should have, you know, psychoanalysis about. (laughs) Um, So I'm from, my parents are um, Polish-Jewish and they were born in 1937. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, worst place to be pretty much in yeah. history. So by near so they were babies during Jewish babies during the Holocaust in Poland and they survived. Three of my four grandparents did not survive. And out of two very large families, you know, I I have, you know, really very my cousins are sort of fake cousins and you know, very distant you know, if yeah, you're, yeah. when you're from a Holocaust family, you know, your sixth cousin is like your first cousin. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty sure I could marry most of my cousins. <laughs> You know, I grew up with parents who had accents, um, who had come to Australia with nothing, who had lost everything. Um, and they were both from big, successful, you know, one was a manufacturing family, one was a textile fa- uh, family. They were sophisticated European families who lost everything and, you know, displaced by the war. And they came to Australia in the 50s where they were pretty much welcomed and had a really fantastic life. Um, my mum's 84 and still alive. My dad sadly died um, over 20 years ago. But you know, I grew up in a country where I had everything. I had freedom, I had education, I had healthcare, all free. <laughs> um, you know, my family were able to, my mum went to university there, my dad started a business. You know, we had a really full life. A great life. Yeah. And I feel I was so lucky and I think I was, I'm so grateful, which is why I make these occasional films about Australia, as I said, because I feel so let down by the country and the way it's headed. And I don't understand why we're so conservative consistently to our detriment. But I think growing up from a young age, knowing that really, really bad things happen to good people, somehow sowed a seed in me without realising it. And, you know, I, I consider myself a filmmaker, you know, more of a sort of journalistic filmmaker. Yeah. I don't see myself as an activist or, a, you know, all these words people throw at you that make me embarrassed. <laughs> but yeah. but there's, definitely, I, there's definitely a theme where I'm attracted to stories where, you know, people need to be heard or people need to... There needs to be a voice for people who are underrepresented mm-hmm. or, or if something's wrong and it really bothers me. So, yeah, and I think I'm a little bit of a shit stirrer too, so it quite, it quite suits me. <laughs> <laughs> 
How much of an influence did your parents have on you and your, your value system? It's really interesting and I don't want to get too deep into this because they'll kill me, but um, my family actually really are pretty conservative. Where really? they vote. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a black. And you're part of that family? <laughs> yeah. No, it's really interesting. Like, you know, um, I mean, they're really good people and, they're, you know, they're, they do care about a lot of things, but, you sure. know, they are, like a lot of people, a little more on the conservative side. So I'm like mm-hmm. the crazy, you know, left-wing <laughs> black sheep in the family. But I think, I do think it was just hearing about stories of what happened during the war and what happened to, you know, in this occasion, Jewish people because of just, you know, how they were born and who they were. And I think as a young kid, when you grow up hearing about that, it's quite shocking. My mum's parents were killed and she was very young and she was later adopted by some relatives. And so I called them my grandparents because they were essentially my grandparents. And, you know, my Babta Ludga, my grandmother Lucy, had, you know, she had Auschwitz um, tattoos on her arm. So she was in Auschwitz. So, you know, from a young age, you know what that is. And you grow up in a, you know, there's a very small Jewish community in Melbourne where I'm from, but it's the second, it was the second largest Holocaust surviving community outside of Israel, which is quite a staggering statistic. So it was very Polish and very Holocaust heavy. And there's only 100,000 Jews in Australia. It's a very small Small community. yeah, Yeah, but. You know, so you would, you know, you grew up seeing a lot of people with those those tattoos on the arms, and I think even I haven't thought about it for a long time. But you know, she died quite a while ago. But when I think about it now, it does bring something up in me. And I think, yeah. I think it's interesting too because I'm not, I don't really, I think I'm probably an atheist. I don't believe in God, but I'm culturally Jewish, yeah. and I like that. And I think that's important to sort of honor my family because of their story. Yeah. And so as I get older, you know, I love you know, the occasional Shabbat dinner or the occasional yeah. Passover Seder dinner. And I like that. I like that sort of... The traditions. Yeah, right? and, and, right. and just reminding yourself of who you are and where you come from. I think that's important. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the film Bikram. Yes. What a powerful film. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So first of all, congratulations, because I think it's an absolutely amazing film. You really show him at his best or worst. I don't yeah. even know what, what word to... I don't think he has a best. <laughs> Again, what made you want to do a film on Bikram? Did you do hot yoga yourself, Bikram yoga? Someone actually brought that to me, someone, a wonderful producer called um, Tabs Breeze, who I'm actually working with on a new project at the minute. So she saw, she's British and she saw Chasing Asylum screen at the London Film Festival. And she called me and said, hey, I liked your film, let's work together. Nice, very nice. (laughs) Um, She was working at a London-based company called Pulse. She sent me a bunch of stuff like over a few months and then she sent me an article about Bikram and said, what do you think of this? And I was like, oh, I am very into this. And I'd heard about him. I knew he'd done some bad things. Yeah. I'd never done a hot yoga class and I do yoga a lot, um, right, yeah. but I just thought it looked kind of gross and yeah. he was kind of gross. <laughs> yes, the little black speedos and the yeah. gold Rolex. Like I was never yeah. a fan. So I came into it knowing, you know, who he was and what he'd done, um, but it was, it was such a gripping story. And the minute I spoke to the women who had yeah. been assaulted or, you know, harassed yeah. by him, 
I, you know, I was very convinced I wanted to make a film and I, I really felt like they had just not been heard. You know, I think, you know, the story had come out well before Me Too and Time's Up. It was a very different time and they were treated appallingly. And a lot of them were quite hesitant at first talking to me because they felt like they had talked and they had been treated terribly by the system and by the police and by the media. And, and so I sort of, I guess, assured them that, you know, I would hear them. And they all had a really positive experience about it. And I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this, but I guess it's been like a year, but about a year after the film came out, the LAPD reopened the criminal investigation into him. They um, did. Yeah, okay. they called some of the women in the film and wanted to re-interview them. So is that really satisfying for you to see real change as a result of it? I mean, it's great, but I don't think they're going to get him. He's such a, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Or I already have. You can, you can Will you beep it out? I was, was going to say he's a slippery little, and I just won't say the word. But, you know, he's, he's, he's sort of a master, a professional at, you know, yeah. um, evading justice. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe one day we will see him, you know, Behind handcuffed. <laughs> but he's, he's a, I mean, he's a terrible human being. And it was, I felt it was an important story to tell. But I, I definitely think it was interesting because we started it before Me Too and Time's Up. Exactly. That's what I was going to come to next. And it's amazing that you did get these women to talk before they had the comfort of an ecosystem that has now made it okay or better for women yeah. to talk. And, that, and as I say, they were definitely, you know, burnt and they were definitely very cautious. And we had a really, I had a really good relationship with them all. And, um, you know, we still stay in touch. I always stay in touch with my people who, you know, give me their lives. But um, I, they all had a really positive experience and I felt like they all felt like they had been heard. And because it had such a, a large global audience, you know, anywhere they go, they people come up to them and recognise them. And no, I, think, known, I think that yes. makes them feel... You know, I think I keep using the word heard, but I think I feel like they didn't, they hadn't felt heard and yeah. things changed dramatically. And it was, it was interesting too, because in a way, you know, Netflix thankfully came on board at the very beginning before Me Too and Time's Up. And then during the, during the making of the film, the whole world kind of shifted yeah. on its access. And I guess that's partially made people more, even more interested. Do you think platforms like Netflix and Amazon how have they changed the world for documentary filmmakers? Like, um, you know, would Bikram have uh, been possible? Would the movie have been possible if you didn't have a streaming service? Would this have been a mainstream documentary which would have shown in sort of mainstream theatres, do you think? It's, it's a very tricky question. And, you know, I'll be, I've got to be super diplomatic because I want to keep working with streamers. <laughs> I mean, and I've been doing this for over 25 years. So yeah. there is, You've seen the change, though, yeah, right? Yeah. Look, there is something wonderful about being in a position as a filmmaker to get your film fully financed quite quickly by one company yes. as opposed to spending years cobbling together little bits of money from here and there, which yes. is what it used to be like to a degree. That's something I really like because I'm not as I'm, some filmmakers like to spend not like some filmmakers spend you know eight years making a documentary and yeah. I'm not that girl you can probably see from my personality I'm like <laughs> quick, quick quick yeah you know yeah. I turn things around in about yeah. a year getting you know pitching something I mean we pitched this to Amazon I think in probably March or April 2020 and we finished you know so and I didn't go to Australia because of COVID and everything yes, till October yeah. so we yeah. started shooting in November Wow, that's really quick. So, um, yeah, we don't mess around. And Bikram was done in like just under 12 months. So, And I think with topical films, you know, it, it behooves you. Yes, you know, exactly. Word, yeah. to, um, to be quick. I think there's something really lovely about that. And having a global audience is amazing. And, I mean, honestly, I've never had a reaction to a film like 
Bitcoin again, having made films for 25 years where yeah. everywhere you, I mean, my makeup artist yesterday in Glasgow has seen Bitcoin. Yes. Um, I was at a bank in rural northern New South Wales in Australia and the bank teller had seen Bitcoin. Like, you know, it, it, it's, it's had a big, you know, tens of millions of people have seen it and you feel that. And that's ultimately as a filmmaker what I want. Not every filmmaker wants that. Some filmmakers want, you know, to shoot on film and show in cinemas and have a cinematic only experience and again I'm a very journalistic filmmaker you want your stories to travel I want people to see them and talk about them and so so streaming works really well for me and I'm really I'm I feel blessed you know my last film was with Netflix my current film is with um Amazon but what Netflix has really done is make documentaries so accessible and I always tell this anecdote you know um I don't know maybe what eight ten twelve years ago you'd be at a party and someone would say, what do you do? And he'd say, I make documentary films. And they would walk away slowly, you know, backwards. Like, <laughs> Seriously, no one, no one cared. And now every 100% of people say, oh, my God, I love documentaries. All I do is watch documentaries. You know, tell me about Wow, what, what a change. And I think that's, I call that like the Netflix sort of effect. effect. And obviously now there's a ton of different streamers, yeah, ton of different platforms. But I do think your films deserve, a, you know, a cinematic sort of experience and audience and I do think there are a lot of companies like Neon or you know Sony Picture Classics who who pick films up and give it give them that sort of love. So I I think it's good. I think there's more doc being made. I think I mean I think like with all content now, there's a lot of you know garbage being made because there's just peak because content too much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and COVID didn't help because you know right. we've all been sitting at home watching stuff for the last eighteen months. But but I do think overall you know there's a tremendous amount of great films being made, and so. As a filmmaker, I'm just like, I'll take it. I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah, and as viewers, I mean, we have so many more choices yeah. now, right? <laughs> Which is great. I, I just want people to see my work and, yeah. and hopefully it will affect them in some way, yeah. Eva, you know, some of the topics you tackle are tough. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about climate change and wildfires now, treatment of refugees, sexual predator. You obviously live with these topics for a long time. How do you cope i mean are you the kind who can compartmentalize and say okay that's work but i'm not going to let it affect me personally or i'm guessing you do internalize a lot of um these topics and how do you process how do you cope when you're working on a film it's a good question and and something that took me and you can tell that i I laugh a lot and i'm quite upbeat but but i take i take these subjects incredibly seriously and they put a huge weight on you and I think about 10 years ago, I think I was really struggling um, with it. And I have a lot of friends who are foreign correspondents who go through this yes. on steroids because I pop yes. in and out of stories, but they live them for years. Right. And a couple of them I saw in really bad situations. And a couple of them who were doing quite well told me that, you know, they'd done a lot of therapy and they sort of said, I think you need to do some therapy. Mm-hmm. And a friend in LA also said to me, he thought I needed a little bit of help. And sure. I was fine on the surface. I was coping beautifully, but... I was going through a lot of guilt. Um, I'd spent a lot of time in places like Afghanistan yeah. and every time something bad happened to me, I would be like, well, you know, don't be such a baby. It's not like you were born in Afghanistan. And when I told that to my therapist, when I started therapy, he was like, okay, we got a lot of, we got a lot of self-empathy work to do here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it's a good question and I'm really honest about it, but I think I was really kind of killing myself internally, yeah. just trying to be really tough. Um, and I learned that. It's okay to not be tough all the time. And I think, I don't know, I actually don't understand how my therapist did this, but somehow over a couple of years, it was, it was a lot of work, but over a couple of years I started 
being able to deal with it in a lot better way and express it more and talk about it more and and I, my life got sort of I guess you know more enjoyable mm. without feeling horrendous guilt because other people are suffering so it was actually quite a big learning curve for me and quite a big investment of time but I think it was really important and I think I think I think at some points I had a bit of PTSD from some of the things I'd experienced so I, I definitely I definitely have this sort of like open relationship with my therapist who I haven't seen in years now but um if anything ever happens I just give them a call and you can have a quick check-in well and, we do uh, we yeah, yeah we've zoomed from like Afghanistan and like Dubai and Iran and um all these places before and um yeah he's he, he likes to keep an eye on me every now and then I think <laughs> <laughs> hi Brad <laughs> we're here on the sidelines of COP in Glasgow is there anything that makes you optimistic I mean I'm very 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 worried I don't think yeah. I don't think this has been very successful. I didn't think it would going into it. Mm. I think, you know, the methane pledge is great, but it's tiny. And, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I, the only thing that's going to save us is, and, and Tim Flannery, the climate, Australian climate scientist, who's here, he oh. says in the film really beautifully, he says, you know, do what you can, absolutely. You know, get solar panels on your roof, drive an electric car, you know, in your community and in your individually and, you know, on a state level, do everything you can. But he says, but it's, we're past the critical point. And yes. he says the only thing that's really going to save us now is global governments coming together and doing what we tell, essentially what we tell them to do. The scientists yeah. tell them what we do and they're not doing that, yeah. which is, you know, it's I depressing. knew this would happen, but you have always have this little bit of hope in you. Am I hopeful? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I like to sort of look at people like Mike Cannon-Brooks, the mm-hmm. Australian billionaire who's putting a ton of money and doing all these crazy, renewable, amazing projects. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like what's happening is the communities are leading governments now. Like mm-hmm. the states are doing much better in Australia than the federal government and, and local communities. Yeah. So I feel like, and the government's begrudgingly being pushed to having to do this. Is it too late? Absolutely. Will we miss targets? Yes. Will it be like probably over two degrees temperature increase by the end of the century? Probably, yes. yes. So yes. I, I don't know. I feel like the world's getting more conservative. I'm incredibly worried Trump or someone like him is going to get in. I think. I think we're going to, you know, do badly in the midterms probably. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, America's really important in this. And if America can't get it together, how can you expect countries with even worse reputations and history? So it's yeah. pretty bad, but I tend, I'm a realist. I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, but I think being a realist in these times is like being a pessimist. <laughs> well, you're a realist. Who cares? Yeah, so. I don't know. I, I think we're in really big trouble. And mm. I guess some people say, you know, technology is going to save us. And maybe it will, but... Um, I'm not so sure. I yeah, mean... I <laughs> no, no, exactly. Um, I think a better plan, if I, you know, if I was in leadership, I'd be like, hey, technology could save us, but why don't we save us first with what we have now? Exactly. And when the technology comes, we'll use it. No, Tim, like Tim says a great line in the film. He says we, we're, we're sleepwalking. It. We've been sleepwalking into uh, catastrophe. Yeah. And I think yeah. that should have been like maybe the byline for the COP conference. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Sleepwalking into catastrophe. Yeah, just to scare everyone. Yeah. Even my last question is this yeah. podcast is called Out of Office. Yes. I know you don't really work in an office. You're a filmmaker. <laughs> but what's your favorite thing to do when you're not? working oh my gosh can I have more than one of course (laughs) (laughs) what do I love doing oh my gosh um I love non-work travel which I don't do that much um do you have a favorite place to go to well my boyfriend's Italian so we're gonna be spending a lot of time in Italy nice um, so that's definitely my 100% favorite place 
um, probably for the rest of my life. <laughs> Italians are fantastic. <laughs> uh, what do we love? Well, I just say we, but um, we sail. Oh, very we nice. sail right yeah. in LA, so we've yeah. become sailors. We learn to sail together. We sail a lot. Um, we cook a lot. We hike a lot. I do a lot of yoga and a lot of spinning. That's probably the main things I do. Fabulous. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking to me on Out of Office. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Eva Orner, who has made the fantastic film Burning about the wildfires in Australia. It will be available on Amazon later this November. I hope you enjoyed listening in. I loved chatting with her. She was humble, sincere, passionate, and she laughs a lot, which is something I loved about her. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're well. And as always, thank you for listening. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.